hppodcraft.com. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. That is the first line from H.P. Lovecraft's essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature. And you are joining us here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. That reader, uh, you guys might recognize him from before. That is my father-in-law, Michael Ford. Yeah, love to hear his voice. Now, who are you speaking right now? Oh, me? I'm, well, I'm Chris Lackey. And who are you? <laughs> I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm glad to be back, man. Ch- Chad, you're reading last week. I wanted to, to mention this on the show. I, I didn't like it. Oh, really? I loved it. Ah, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I was a little nervous about it because we normally have some masterful readers on here, and and I I rarely do that. Thank you for talking me into it. I had a really good time doing it, and and as of this recording, it hasn't gone out yet, so hopefully people in the audience uh, listened to it and liked it as well, and they go pick up the book. I don't Uh, see how they could not like it. It's great, and I, I want you to write more, Fiverr. Write more stories. Well, you know, you can pick up my novel, Children in Heat, from Amazon.com if that's something that strikes your fancy. Chris, I also want to mention that you've got a story in the Shotguns vs. Cthulhu I do. anthology as well called Snack Time, which is <laughs> which is an awesome title for a Lovecraftian story. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I don't think we'll be doing a reading of it because we don't want to read all the stories in Shotguns vs. Cthulhu, obviously. No, we want you to pick up the book. And there's a story in there from Ken Height as well and uh, a, a lot of other great writers. And, you know, if you have uh, listened to our show, if you listened to it front to back when we covered Lovecraft's stories, I think there'll be a lot in my story that you can unpack there. There's references to a lot of different things. But it was kind of a, a joy to do that just because I don't think I would have had the uh, the knowledge to, to pack all that stuff in there if we hadn't gone through. Oh, my God. Yeah, I read I read your story, and I got a couple of the references in there. And then I listened mm-hmm. to it when you did this recording, got a couple more. And then I listened to it a second time. And then I got a, even more. I was like, oh man, Pfeiffer, you've packed this thing full of some crafty <laughs> goodness. Plus it's just a really well-told story. Good job. Well, thanks, man. Thanks. And I hope people like it. So how are you feeling since we finished up? A little sad about... A little bit, yeah. My dad uh, listens to the show, and he said it sounded like we got a little choked up on that last episode. Saying goodbye to Lovecraft was tough, although, what do you know? We've got a little more to talk about oh, here Oh, we've got, we've got more Lovecraft. Not only this, but there are other things of Lovecrafts that we're going to probably jump into over, over the next few months, if not years. Just to set expectations here, we're talking about supernatural horror in literature. It's an essay that Lovecraft wrote about the field that he was working in. We're going to cover the first section, the introduction of it today. There's so much to unpack just in this introduction that we're literally going to go line by line, uh, read the sentence, and then talk about our thoughts on it. Now, I know last week we said we were going to have subscriptions already worked out and everything was going to be smooth. Unfortunately, that hasn't come to fruition yet, but we're almost there. We're going to have everything set up, so stay tuned to this feed. Next week, there's going to be a small segment that will be the first part of the episode. And at the end of that, it'll tell you how you can subscribe. So just stay tuned to this feed or go to the website on August 8th. So August 8th, get ready to enjoy some premium content. We're excited to share it. Before we dive into these different things that are expressed in the in the essay, do you have any background on this essay when it came out? No, no, it's... It, 
Is there any, is there background on this story? Yes, of course I have background on this story. <laughs> Why would you ask such a silly question? It was written in November of 1925 and then kind of continued on until May 1927. It was this guy, Paul Cook, who had this magazine called The Recluse and he wanted Lovecraft to kind of write an essay about weird fiction and horror and, and those types of things. And Lovecraft took it really seriously. Now, mm -hmm. when he was writing this, he, he did sort of a version and then part of it got published and then he kept revising it, kept adding different things. And uh, as, as he worked throughout the years, I mean, it wasn't really finished until August 1934. Right. And I think the pieces of it throughout his lifetime were published here and there, but the whole thing in total was never put out while he was alive. The whole version of it wasn't finally published until 1939 in The Outsider and Others, which is uh, the book that mm. August Erleth did with Arkham House, which was the right. compilation of all of his works. The version of it that I've just recently picked up is S.T. Joshi's annotated version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you can pick up on Amazon. It's going to be easy for us to get through this introductory section, but after that, I'm going to need Joshi to have my back when he's talking about all these different authors and, yeah. and periods of time because fairly well-read, but most of this stuff I actually am not too familiar with. No, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I'm actually excited to explore uh, that Lovecraft is bringing up to me. So uh, let's get into this stuff, man. Sure. So now that first sentence, he makes a claim right out of the gate that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is, is fear. It's yeah. specifically fear of the unknown. Yeah. And I mean, I was kind of thinking, I'm like, well, fear is, I went up an, online and started looking at definitions of fear. Like, what does that mm -hmm. mean exactly? And basically fear is the emotion of, of perceived threat. Like if you mm -hmm. think something is threatening or could threaten you, you will feel that emotion. And that is right. what we call fear. Trying to look at things that way. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. And the unknown is, is what he talks about. The, that is the, the greatest fear. I, I, I agree with him, actually. I think, I'm sure, just the, the act of being born, entering this world is completely strange and possibly could threaten you. Yeah, it makes sense that, that this is probably the first thing that you experience is fear and, and not knowing what's going to happen to you and the potential that it could be could be violent. What's so scary about the unknown is it's you can't quantify it because there's different things that you're afraid of. You're afraid of physical harm being done to you. You're afraid, mm -hmm. so it can be afraid of physical harm being done to somebody else. You can be afraid that your reputation might be hurt. You could be afraid that your your family might be hurt in some way or that your civilization or your culture, or all these things mm -hmm. might be at, at risk or be threatened. And if you're dealing with something that is unknown, you don't know what aspect of your existence could be threatened. Therefore, right. all aspects of your existence are threatened. Right. I mean, it's it, it, the one thing that we'll never know about is death. And so I think that that probably counts as number one, right? Because nobody can come back and tell you what, what it feels like or what happens. Right. Yeah. I actually got, I read this Gallup poll that was on, it was on Wikipedia, so it wasn't too much research, but um, they asked 13 mm. to 15 year olds, what were their top 10 fears? And they were mm. ter terrorist attacks, spiders, death, being a failure, war, mm. heights, criminal or gang activity or violence, being alone, the future, and then nuclear war. And beards. No, I don't know. Ned Spears is not in there. <laughs> There's also this guy called uh, Bill Tanser who does psychology is behind internet like purchasing and activity and things like that. And he yeah. asked a bunch of people what they fear. And those were flying, heights, clowns, intimacy, death, rejection, people, snakes, failure, and driving? It reminds me of that Jerry Seinfeld joke where he said that uh, more people are afraid of speaking in public than are afraid of death. 
So, in fact, more people are afraid of giving the eulogy than being in the casket. (laughs) (laughs) These facts few psychologists will dispute, and their admitted truth must establish for all time the genuineness and dignity of the weirdly horrible tale as a literary form. So that's the second sentence, and it's where he takes this claim and brings it into the literary tradition. You know, he makes a claim right at the beginning of that sentence that few psychologists will dispute that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear of the unknown. And from what you're saying, it it actually sounds like that's likely to be true. Yeah. He's making a strong argument in that sentence that because fear is so, so much a part of our human experience and genetic makeup and everything, the fear story, the horrible tale, is genuine. I mean, it, it should be given dignity as a literary form. Right. And I completely agree, but, and he's about to talk about that, you know, it's often dismissed as something that's just puerile entertainment. Right. Against it are discharged all the shafts of materialistic sophistication which clings to frequently felt emotions and external events, and of a naively insipid idealism which deprecates the aesthetic motive and calls for a didactic literature to uplift the reader towards a suitable degree of smirking optimism. So there's a lot to unpack in that sentence. I had to read it a couple of times. He's saying against it are discharged all the shafts, you know, arrows, attacks Mm -hmm. of a sophistication. I I think he's talking about maybe the literary scholars or, or, you know, the erudite. They cling to this materialistic sophistication, meaning they want things to be about the real world. They want things to be about emotions and external events which are frequent things that everybody experiences they think the stories and literature that are good are those that point toward uh, a sort of idealism uh, which he calls naively insipid right Uh but we're talking about common forms if you put this in film terms it's the idea that there's got to be a three-act structure and at the end there's a happy ending or a person's changed over time he says a didactic literature meaning a literature that instructs your life Mm -hmm. and uplifts you towards a suitable degree of smirking optimism right Happy endings, right? Like, yeah. I think of uh, Candide by Voltaire when he, he makes fun of the, the philosopher that says, we live in the best of all possible worlds and the best of all possible times, and that's just the way things are. It's this smirking optimism. But I, I have to say that, to a degree, there is some truth to that, because, now, I, I know Lovecraft's attacking these guys here, but I, uh, on the defense of, of, of these people, I feel like most of my life isn't dictated by fear, or at least... I don't run around being afraid all the time. Sure. (laughs) I don't really feel afraid very often. And I think, I mean, he talks about this a little bit moving on where people get titillated by it because it's, it's sort of a foreign feeling most of the time. But I don't know if he's necessarily attacking these people. I mean, his, his language is deriding them a little bit, but in the next paragraph, he talks a little bit and he says, Hey, you know what? That is the stuff that we deal with for the most part. So, you know, it has its place. It does. But I think he's really saying that doesn't have to be the only thing that's out there. This fear of the unknown and is worth being treated in literature. But in spite of all this opposition, the weird tale has survived, developed and attained remarkable heights of perfection. Founded, as it is, on a profound and elementary principle whose appeal, if not always universal must necessarily be poignant and permanent to minds of the requisite sensitiveness. So it's not going to appeal to everybody. No. But to people who are open to it, it can have a very profound effect. That's what I'm getting. And I think people that have felt that genuine fear at at times in their lives and need to confront it in in a way, or at least experience that emotion. And it is titillating to be afraid or to be scared. Watching a horror film or, you know, like we used to work in haunted houses and that was all about people 
wanting oh, to yeah. be scared and <laughs> and scaring other people. I got to say, I have had the best discussions about ghost stories where people are, you know, you sit around. Sometimes this happens in a social setting where suddenly everybody's exchanging stories and you're talking about weird things that happened to you. <laughs> Those conversations, by and large, have happened with this introductory statement. Oh, I don't like horror movies. I mean, this happens all the time where somebody yeah. goes, no, no, I don't like that stuff. I can't read Stephen King. It's too scary. I can't do it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff creeps me out. You know, when I was a kid, my grandma's house, there was this, and then boom, you're off to the races. Because they do like it. Yeah. It's just that they're not consumers of it. Yeah. Which kind of leads into what he says next, which is... The appeal of the spectral in macabre is generally narrow because it demands from the reader a certain degree of imagination and a capacity for detachment from everyday life. Before you can really appreciate these types of tales, you got to get your head out of the day-to-day. -day. You have to get your head out of the day-to-day -day because you aren't confronted with universal or cosmic horrors at all in your day-to-day -day life. Or at least not usually. I mean, especially if you're a guy who works at a factory or something like that. You, mm -hmm. you, go in, you wake up in the morning, you have your breakfast, you go to work, you deal with people you know, you come back, you see your family, and you start all over again. You don't really have yeah. a place in your life to sort of open your mind up to those possibilities those the unknown horrors that can exist out in that universe it takes a little effort yeah and i also think that it's extremely i think all entertainment and literature and i do think that all of it kind of serves to help us process things in the human experience and often you're gonna think i'm silly but i mean it's something like the kardashian shows mm -hmm. they make sense to me because it's easy to deride that kind of stuff because if you watch it nothing happens it's just people going around making phone calls eating breakfast arguing with their friends but that's what we're all doing, and I think sometimes you need to reach out and watch somebody else go through it just so you don't feel so alone, even if it's on this kind of stupid celebrity level. I think the very mundanity of it is why people connect to it. Yeah. Oh, these people who are fabulously wealthy and beautiful, they're going through the same stupid arguments and, and things like that. Right. And so if you have time to interact with literature or entertainment, sometimes that's just what you need to seek out. E even if it's like a movie where people are breaking up and it's sad and, and everything's very average. It's like the worst things are soap operas. Everything's terrible that's happening to these people all the time. Yeah. yeah. And that helps you go, okay, I'm connected to the larger human experience. So if you... You need to kind of have a comfort level with that before you can then take that next step and free yourself up to remember what it's like to be really afraid. Relatively few are free enough from the spell of the daily routine to respond to wrappings from outside, and tales of ordinary feelings and events, or of common sentimental distortions of such feelings and events, will always take first place in the taste of the majority. Rightly, perhaps, since, of course, these ordinary matters make up the greater part of human experience. But the sensitive are always with us, and sometimes a curious streak of fancy invades an obscure corner of the very hardest head, so that no amount of rationalisation, reform or Freudian analysis can quite annul the thrill of the chimney corner whisper or the lonely wood. That's so well said. I feel like, I mean, obviously, we are these, these type of people. Not just yeah. you and I, Chad, but the people that listen to our show are, right. are, are the sensitive, are the people that have their minds open and think about not just their society or their world, but their culture, their civilization, and all these things, and kind of have these grand views. And I think there is a, a need for, well, at least for me, to be optimistic about where our civilization is going, where humanity mm -hmm. is going. I like to think things are, are better than they were before. I mean, they're still bad, but better. What, what Lovecraft talks about, and I think why we find him so attractive, is that he takes those kind of accepted optimistic views about 
civilization and turns them on their end. Yeah, yeah. Well, here in this thing that he just said, I, that what was interesting to me about that was uh, no amount of Freudian analysis can annul the thrill of a, the lonely wood or a chimney corner whisper. I think what he's getting at there is, and we talked about anxiety a minute ago, but you might go, gosh, I'm really afraid of this or that or I have this phobia. So you're going to go get analyzed or talk to a therapist who can say, yeah, I think you were abandoned as a child. So maybe you're afraid of this because it represents that abandonment. We can do things to try and figure it out. But at its base, everybody's still going to experience that little bit of thrill or fear that happens when oh. something is just bizarre and seems to happen from Absolutely. the outside. And, and, and I think we even crave it a little bit. I, I always think about when I was a kid and I'd be uh, crossing through the house after I'd gotten up to go to the bathroom or something and there was a mirror in the hallway. And I had to pass that mirror when I would go to my bedroom. I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but as I would pass it in the very, very dim light, I would make a horrifying face in the mirror <laughs> just to scare myself, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah no reason yeah. to do it. But what he is saying here is it's exactly that. Not, not that, but that you can have a scary experience and it. And there's a logical explanation. Like, say you're at home and you hear this scraping noise and it sounds like something mm. is scraping on the side of the house and you go outside and look, there's nothing there. And you're like, oh my God, what could it be? And yeah. you and you figure out, oh wait, it's this loose pipe and it's sure. it's caught in the wind and things like that. There's a sense of disappointment. Yeah. When you when yeah. you find out that it's not really a monster, even though if it was a monster, it's horrible. But when you go, oh, it's a it's a pipe. Hmm. How, yeah. how how mundane, you know, not, that's not very exciting. That doesn't give me that charge, that, that, that fear. There is here involved a psychological pattern or tradition as real and as deeply grounded in mental experience as any other pattern or tradition of mankind. Coeval with the religious feeling and closely related to many aspects of it and too much a part of our inmost biological heritage to lose keen potency over a very important though not numerically great, minority of our species. He says it's coeval with the religious feeling. And he goes on to talk about that, obviously, a little more. Well, you know, we shouldn't get into it too much, because he does talk about how this kind of matches with religion, although religion serves a different purpose. Yeah. Whereas uh, weird literature is a more pessimistic and explores the horrible, where religion is supposed to be more optimistic, although it yes. commonly isn't. But his point is just that this is so important to what makes us human and what makes up us as a species that it can never stop influencing a psychologically sensitive few. And I would argue that it, can, it influences everybody all the time. We just don't really know it on a conscious level. Man's first instincts and emotions formed his response to the environment in which he found himself. Definite feelings based on pleasure and pain grew up around the phenomena whose causes and effects he understood, whilst around those which he did not understand and the universe teemed with them in the early days, were naturally woven such personifications, marvellous interpretations, and sensations of awe and fear as would be hit upon by a race having few and simple ideas and limited experience. That immediately puts me in mind of like the first mythology class I took. Mm -hmm. the teacher said, well, look, you know, the reason that people made up these stories is because they didn't understand the way the world worked, and so they had to kind of personify these unknown forces. And that's why we have mythology. I mean, most of these things are kind of to explain why did the earth flood or, or why are berries red or why does this bird sing this kind of song? Because mm -hmm. they didn't know, so they made it up. It's always that thing where you have to think back to how freaking scary the world was. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying 150 years ago when there wasn't electric light, that might sound kind of silly, but I think about that all the time. You know, the world is a really definable place now. 
But when you lived in a in a world where when it got dark, sure, you could light some fires and some candles and some lanterns, but those shadows were always there. Recently, uh, there was a power outage or some lights were on, on one of the streets that I live by. Uh, the lights went out for whatever reason at night, and it was so scary <laughs> it was so were dark. the italians out uh doing prayers and... no that's and that's why i was scared <laughs> there was no candle light vigil or anything like no it's just everything is so illuminated and there's so much light and there's not too many nooks and crannies for things to hide over 100 years ago when people didn't have electric light think of how many dark spots there were out in the world and it, just in your neighborhood or in your village yeah. it seems like it could be it would be such a terrifying place and it's again it's the unknown you don't know what's in those shadows it could be a person and it could be an animal or a disease or it makes me feel much better about living in this this modern age because it feels so much safer the unknown being likewise the unpredictable became for our primitive forefathers a terrible and omnipotent source of boons and calamities visited upon mankind for cryptic and wholly extraterrestrial reasons and thus clearly belonging to spheres of existence whereof we know nothing and wherein we have no part. And man, I'll tell you, the world is so full of natural disaster and awful things that I think there's still a kind of spiritual awe. We, we use different names for it now and we try to explore. I mean, I think the global warming debate has something to do with this. There's people who say, are, you know, the great global warming thing is responsible for this and others say no no it's because uh you know we're not being good christians and being punished for it i mean that kind of debate is still happening i remember when pat robertson uh blamed tried to blame katrina on sin on the the yeah. people of, of new orleans being sinful and and decadent and it was god's wrath coming on to them and it's like wow that's that's a belief that that somebody that enough people adhere to still, that they think mm -hmm. that for them that makes sense, then that's something that is controllable. Because if you please your God, then these bad things won't happen to you. And that makes people feel better because that's their fault. But when these things happen and there is no rhyme or reason, they just happen. They're just acts of nature. Anything can happen. The Baptist drummer Phil Plate, he has a book called How the World Will End, and it gives mm -hmm. all of these different scenarios of meteorites hitting Earth, uh, global famines, like all these different possible ways. And what are the odds, calculating the odds of all these things happening over a certain amount of time. And in a, a, a large size meteorite, has a, there's a reasonable chance that one might hit Earth again someday in the next sure. few hundred years. Well, it's unpredictable. Yeah, it could happen. It could happen. It's very possible. Yeah. Not, not probable, but still possible. And all of these things as humans we have to deal with. I, I like the way he says it, the unknown being likewise the unpredictable uh, becomes a terrible and omnipotent source of boons and calamities. Think, things happen for wholly extraterrestrial reasons. Something's happening in the heavens and we got punished for it. And it's right. to us to try to interpret or decide or, or figure out why. Right. And throughout history, you have people standing up and saying, I know why. If you do this, if you count these chicken bones or eat this soup or you pray to this God and you do these kinds of things, we've already talked about this, but fear is so tied up to that. Of course. People live their whole lives worshiping certain kinds of gods because they're afraid if they don't, they're going to be punished. Yeah. Because they often were for reasons that they couldn't explain. Yeah. You know, that's why you see books even now in print, like why bad things happen to good people. It's always yeah. a bestseller after somebody gets sick or just doesn't understand. I lived a good life. Why did I get a disease? Right. That's still to us as a mystery. And why you wouldn't ask that question if you were strictly scientific. You'd say, well, the universe is random and these things happen for absolutely no reason. They happen because of entropy. But when you do get an affliction or something awful happens to you, 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 at the bottom of your heart, I think everybody says, but I tried so hard. Why yeah. am I being punished? 
And that's an, that's a holy spiritual feeling. It's not reasonable. No, it's not. And he also says not just calamities, but boons. Oh, right, right. When good things happen for no apparent reason, they're also attributed to these things. Well, I get nervous when something happens to me that's good. <laughs> I do. <laughs> right. I Anything good that happens to me, I'm like, when's the other shoe going to drop? Or who's tricking me? <laughs> it's not reasonable. <laughs> who's tricking me? In fact, this ha- I, I have this argument all the time because I, I think like things are really working out. And you know, my wife will be like, well, Chad, you've been working really hard. I mean, you know, you deserve this or whatever. I'll be like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And and that is unreasonable, but it's there because you think something else, otherworldly, is at work. All right. Well, Chris, we're already in the third paragraph already. We're we're only in the third paragraph, and uh, we've been talking so much that we haven't gotten very far. So maybe in in our next show on supernatural horror and literature in a month, we'll continue through this introduction and get a little further. But this is really where a lot of his literary theory is. Later on, later chapters actually discuss specific stories yeah so when we cover those stories we'll be able to pull from that so this is really the important discussion we need to have yeah and let me just close out this third paragraph he says the phenomenon of dreaming likewise helped to build up the notion of an unreal or spiritual world and in general all the conditions of savage dawn life so strongly conduced towards the feeling of a supernatural that we need not wonder at the thoroughness with which man's very hereditary essence has become saturated with religion and superstition. That saturation must, as a matter of plain scientific fact, be regarded as virtually permanent so far as the subconscious mind and the inner instinct are concerned. For though the area of the unknown has been steadily contracting for thousands of years, an infinite reservoir of mystery still engulfs most of the outer cosmos. Whilst a vast residuum of powerful inherited associations clings around all the objects and processes that were once mysterious, however well they may now be explained. And more than this, there is an actual physiological fixation of the old instincts in our nervous tissue, which would make them obscurely operative, even were the conscious mind to be purged of all sources of wonder. All of that, I think, summarizes up pretty well what we've been discussing. The one thing that yeah. we haven't touched on that he mentions there is that added to all of this unknowable stuff about the universe is the phenomena of dreaming, which is the subject of so much of Lovecraft's work. It's really interesting. That whole last section really reminds me a lot of the opening line of The Call of Cthulhu. He ties upon that where he says, what we should fear is the collection of knowledge of the, the disassociated bits and then mm-hmm. putting them together will make people freak out. <laughs> and that is right. something that is on his mind that our mm-hmm. that as we progress scientifically what we don't know is getting smaller and smaller mm-hmm. but i you know i would argue too that the more you learn the less you know and sure. you find out that as you start expanding you're like oh wow there's matter is made up of smaller particles and it's like mm-hmm. oh well those smaller particles are made up of even smaller particles and then it's like yeah. what there's this whole other universe that exists and there's other dimensions and there's the and, you know, the recent confirmation of the Higgs boson particle right. as well. You know, that that stuff is quantifying things. With each fact, there are spaces between each fact. So now there are more spaces than there were before. Steve Martin was angry because he got a suit back from the uh, dry cleaners and Higgs boson particles were all over it. <laughs> Actually, I heard a pretty good uh, Higgs boson joke that uh, why was the Catholic priest upset that the Higgs boson was late to church? Why? They couldn't have mass without him. <laughs> <laughs> so lame. It's such a corny joke. <laughs>
Dude, it's I, the essay is so good. It's it's so good. It's a lot to talk about, and it really shows you what was going on in Lovecraft's mind when he was trying to construct all of those. Tales. Absolutely. In this first section, he talks about a story called "The Yellow Wallpaper" by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Mm-hmm. He brings it up because he's saying that even writers who concern themselves mostly with the mundane or the basic human experience will occasionally turn to the weird tale because it's such a fundamental part of our makeup. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about The Yellow Wallpaper later this month. The first two stories that we're going to talk about next on our subscribers-only show, two stories from the collection The King in Yellow, which he addresses later in this essay. And the two that we're going to tackle are The Repairer of Reputations. That's next week. And then after that, The Yellow Sign. Now, in, in this essay, he talks about The Yellow Sign specifically. He doesn't talk about The Repairer of Reputations. He talks about no. a couple of other stories in there. But... You and I love that story so much. We we love that story. So we're going to we're going to talk about it. Yeah. We have to talk about it. We're going to tackle that next. And then also this month we're going to release a little segment featuring Andrew Lehman. Andrew Lehman is going to come on and we're going to have a talk with him about the history of the color yellow, why it's coming up in all of these stories and also what was going on when those stories were written. They all uh, took place in the 1890s. They're all yeah. written in the 1890s, which is an interesting period in literature. And Andrew's going to give us some sort of historical context so we and appreciate what was going on in the lives of Chambers and Gilman when, when these stories were written. So it's a really exciting month. We've got those three yeah. stories. We've got this, uh, the special segment with Andrew Lehman. I hope you all will sign up next week for the podcast uh, premium feed. It is $6.66 for three months. So that's $2.22 a month. A steal. A steal, I tell you. Uh, there's going to be lots of great content. So please stay tuned. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Hope you join us next week. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>